Need a new set of optics? For more than a decade, Riton Optics has been providing optic solutions for hunters and shooters of all types and disciplines. Check out their Primal line for those products geared more towards us hunters. From binoculars and spotting scopes to your basic 3-9 to nine scopes and longer range crossover models, the Primal line from Riton was made for hunters. Learn more at RitonOptics.com. That's Riton, R-I-T-O-N, Optics.com. This is the OKS Trapper, part of the OKS Podcast Network, with host Zach Hansen, author of Turning Feral. Hear stories, lessons, and fireside chats through a journey of hunting, trapping, and wilderness living in the modern age. Howdy, everyone, and welcome to the OKS Trapper Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Hansen, and today is a special day because it's our inaugural episode. I am beyond excited to have a friend of mine, Andrew DeHart, as the first person in the hot seat. Now, before we get started, I wanted to take a second to thank the OKS Hunter Network for helping pull this podcast together. Trapping and sharing useful information about conservation and the ways of old has frankly consumed my life. And now I have a platform to bring in great guests and to help spread the positive word around trapping and its broader impacts. So if you like what you've listened to today, go ahead and follow the OKS Hunter and the Let Me Die Learning across all social channels to make sure you get alerted when a new episode drops every other week. But with those formalities out of the way, let me introduce my guest, Andrew DeHart. Andrew has been trapping for over a decade, is a fur buyer, wildlife control operator, board member for the Oregon Trappers Association. He is also the host and producer of Oregon Trappers Association podcast and the co-host and producer of the National Trappers Association podcast. Well, Andrew, that is quite an intro, and welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Zach. I'm uh, honored to be on and be your your first guest. Uh, we've been talking about doing this for a while, and um, I'm excited to be here. Awesome, man. Well, you know, it's interesting for guests. You know, Andrew and I met, I think, last January, so almost a year ago, at the first sale in Glens Ferry, Idaho, hosted by the Idaho Trappers Association, and I think you know, I was there signing books. You were there grading fur, if I remember correctly. But when we kind of crossed paths, you know, I noticed you had cauliflower ear. And that was something that, you know, both of us have. So we kind of were able to hit it off around wrestling of all things before we kind of started talking about fur trapping and everything else related to it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I think that you're correct. That was our first meeting. I think we did a show for the OTA podcast right before that with your book. Yep. Um, if memory serves me correct, but yeah, we, we were able to have a full panel discussion and uh, between wrestling and trapping the outdoors, whatever. And it's amazing to me how many times that that combination <laughs> is met, which is odd because wrestling and trapping are in the same general time frame. Yep. Yeah, I think there's something about it, too, and we can probably talk about it some, but th there's definitely some overlap for type two fun as it relates to both wrestling and trapping, right? It's something that often is not very enjoyable in the moment, but when you look back, it's a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, you know, we talked a little bit before this, but the OKS Trapper, you know, the show's purpose, my purpose around this is to help bring either new trappers, experienced trappers together to talk about it in a way that helps people kind of overcome 
some of the concern, some of the fear that is based around trapping, especially for newcomers. So, you know, to get started, Andrew, I'd love to know a little bit more about your background, how you first got exposed to trapping. And on top of that, what is your earliest trapping memory? Now, folks, you might not be able to see it because we're not leveraging video, but Andrew is sitting in, I think, what, your childhood home right now with some of your original fur and trapping equipment behind you. Yeah, uh, bless my folks for letting me take my vacation, come back home and trap where I grew up trapping. Um, Which is where, by the way? A little town called Parkdale, Oregon. Awesome. Um, It's south of Hood River, about 20 miles. So it's it's a quiet little farming community, lots of orchards, lots of tourism in the in the summertime but it's a beautiful area it's very um trapping rich and i absolutely love it awesome but um so i guess on on me um you know my my dad i i grew up and my dad told me stories of him and my great uncle bob um going going trapping and running hounds um that was back in the day like Oh, I want to say in the, my dad didn't partake till into the seventies and eighties in the, in the fur boom. But, um, my uncle, my great uncle was running hounds and trapping for the bounty. Um, believe it or not, they used to have a bounty on bobcats, um, in, in Hood River and Wasco County in the sixties. And so that's what he mainly was concerned about, but, you know, uh, grew up, uh, hearing all those stories, I, I love the the outdoors in the wintertime, and there's something nostalgic about kind of going back in time while you trap. Um, it, it makes you feel like you were born a century too late. Um, and, you know, I, I love the book Where the Red Fern Grows. Now, um, had a couple of hounds in the past, you know, uh, beagles, been around dogs. Never was a really big dog hunter. Um, I have nothing against it. I love it. Um, but boy, trapping for me just like sunk in deep and and I loved it. I loved the experience. Um, I'd say my earliest trapping memory was, you know, I, I would sit there and I'd listen to like my grandpa talk. I have several of them that really hit home, but I remember my grandpa having an issue with the raccoon uh, getting into his chicken pen and going down and watching him set the cage. And then from there on, I wanted to set a cage in every location I could to try and catch something, whether it was a squirrel or a skunk or, uh, but I, I can remember going down and helping him set that cage. And, and that was probably my earliest trapping memory. Um, didn't really start getting into it on just my own until later in life. That's awesome. So the red fern grows, you know, that's funny you mentioned that. I think most American kids have to read that at some point. I don't know if that's in middle school or high school. I can't remember correctly, but I read it. And frankly, it didn't have a big impact on me because I couldn't relate. I didn't grow up in a hunting and trapping family. I'm like, oh, here's just another book. But recently, um, after being into trapping for several years, I heard on the Bear Grease podcast, Clay Newcomb's podcast a while ago, he did a whole expose on the author of the Red Fern Grove and did a breakdown of it, you know, all about the kind of coon hunting, you know, nostalgia that happens in kind of the middle of the country. 
and it really kind of reopened my eyes. So what was it about the Redfern Grows that really drew you into it? Was it just like the young boy and his dog, or was it the fact that you'd been exposed to coon trapping and hunting at that point? Um, so, well, to start off, most people, um, if I, if I've ever had a conversation with, with anybody about hunting and fishing and trapping, uh, I love catching raccoons. I know they're not worth a lot, but I just love the, the going out and catching raccoons. There's something about it, whether they're ornery, whether they're, it's just the area, whether it's that nostalgic from the book. Um, for me, it hit home because when I about the time I really started reading that book, I was about the age of the character in the book, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. Um, and it was just, it was a boy who loved the outdoors, would do anything for his dogs, um, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty passionate. I, I, I love my dogs, whether they're any kind of dog, um, you know, and it just, again, it just kind of set you back in time. You know, they're in the early uh, 1900s. Coon hunting was a big thing back then. Um, Europe was just in love with them. And just just to hear the story and the adventure and, you know, I'd, I'd get done reading the book and I remember on the weekends, I'd want to just run out to the woods and and just imagine, you know, and um, it just it just hit home. There's just so many connections with with the love and the interest in the dogs and the passion for the outdoors and, and obviously going after the raccoons, it, it just really hit home for me. That's awesome. But as you evolved as a trapper, you know, from that time period of being exposed to coon trapping, you know, maybe an uncle doing some of the, the bobcat stuff, you know, a lot of trappers, myself included, have found themselves probably gravitating toward one specific species that they just love or at least that they have a lot more experience and success and for me it's beaver um but for you what is that animal and if you had to trap one animal for the rest of your life what would it be oh i i'd say if i had to pick one animal to catch for the rest of my life it would probably be bobcats um i've got into a rhythm where that exploration over time and and love for it and becoming more focused on on the bobcats um mainly just and it's not by any means for the money because around here um you know bobcats are not colored up well they kind of get a ghost belly but i just that they're i don't know how to explain it the best it, it's just it's a love like i from when I caught my first cat, I went, okay, this is what I want to do. I love the put up. I love the, you know, uh, seeing them on the board after they're dried. I mean, I even get a little upset after I do end up selling the hides. I'm like, oh man, there they go. Um, and so I, as I grew older and I, and I started developing, you know, the main animals I was going to chase raccoons are still in that, in that boat, but I would definitely say my main target is bobcats and, and that's what I would focus on um, the and most. And if I remember correctly, when we met, you were walking around with a fur grader, and I think you might have been looking at bobcats, uh, a stack of them. Hey, is that true? Do I have the right memory? And if not, correct me. But if I do, you know, for people, you mentioned ghost belly. Can you kind of briefly just describe the 
bobcat market in so much that like what is it that they're looking at you know what are you going after with your cats that get you so excited um so basically yes that that memory is true i was walking around with a, a fur buyer that i work for i'm um, in a sense um and we were we were going around grading cats it was there was a new opportunity for me and so we were kind of making sure we were on the same standard for you know what what do we want to pay for a cat um and so that was that particular trip in january was more just kind of a, a learning bit for me um thankfully i have my handy dandy fur measuring tape here um oh, nice. so i can kind of give you the measurements um and for those uh, listening you know andrew just held up what looks to me like a small tape measure right yep there's a small tape measure so um there's there's two things you you measure um when you're talking about cats so you go from the nose to the base of the tail um and anything less than 32 inches measuring from the on the back the nose to the base of the tail is considered a medium-sized cat anything from 32 to 36 is considered a large uh 36 to 40 is an xl and 40 and above is a double x cat now is that yeah. universal across the states like for bobcats all over or is that kind of a western states I, it's a it's a universal standard um for anybody who ever had experience with nafa um there's the nafa uh grading scale basically and that's kind of your international scale you know when these things get sold um overseas and whatnot that's kind of the the measurements they go off of um and it's all for for making garments um, you know, it's kind of just a standardized length for what they can use. 36 is really your key measurement. You try to always get your cat to at least 36. Hmm. Um, and then for the bellies, you know, I, I mentioned ghost bellies. This is our next measurement. So on a bobcat, you want the widest white belly that you can. Um, and the grading those cats um is the measurement too of how wide um that white strip is and now i'm talking pure white a lot of the time you get some little creamy yellow on the sides from the where the fur starts to mix um I, i'm talking the pure white that purest white strip down the belly that you can and and that determines your grade of an a b or c um and you can you can get into finite details with a b plus or a b minus or or however you want to determine it but basically if you can get if you can get five inches or sorry four inches of pure white going down the middle of that stretched hide um it is an a cat it's a it's wide enough that they can take that strip and use it um for a large piece on a garment um two to two to three and a half would be your B cat and less than two would be a C cat. Um, and that's again, just how wide that white strip is. Um, and what I talked about ghost bellies, usually um, like our cats around here that I'm catching, they start off really white and wide um, down by the back legs. 
and then they kind of come up real narrow um, because it's it's dark timber it's kind of a red you know red fir cedar tree area and so they they got to blend into their atmosphere and so they don't get a whole lot of white um, through the middle of their belly but up at their chest and their and their crotch area it becomes a little bit more white if you will and so we call them a ghost belly awesome and then so when you talk about these measurements too from a an average cat that you would catch in your area how much are you stretching them so if you catch a cat that has kind of maybe a a c grade you know strip of white can you stretch them to a b grade in a lot of instances how much elasticity in that skin do they have i don't do a lot of bobcat trapping so it's kind of a an unknown area for me on how much you can actually stretch them on a board well um in reality the cat you catch is the cat you catch um i've i've had cats that you know you take a picture of them and it's like oh my gosh this thing has just got a white belly and you put them on a board and they dry and it's like uh oh wow there's there's not as much white there as i thought and that's from that creamy yellow um that kind of kind of looks white we call it an off-white maybe um but when you put up a cat, there's no real stretching that belly out. They're they're a fairly thin hide, um, and once you got them on the board, they're on the board. There's no there's no contorting, you know, um, as far as width and getting more white to show. Um, all you're going to do there is kind of make more of a football shaped stretch if you're trying to go wider. Um, the stretching is more in regards to the length, so you're getting the maybe you're getting a large instead of a medium mm. or a extra large instead of a large, just depending. And it's, it's just really on how big your cats are in your area, you know? Awesome. Well, you know, I am the world's worst Bobcat trapper. I have tried multiple times, been out with folks who had experience. We have cats running around up here. I have only connected on a few, but my little Bobcat cubby sets are pretty, you know, objectively terrible because i'm not catching a lot so mm -hmm. you know as a follow-on to this being your favorite animal what's your favorite type of trap to set for bobcats and then a little other question is do you do anything differently than others in your trap preparation or anything else that you know you kind of have up your sleeve as a bobcat trapper um so my my favorite um my favorite set, I'm a big cubby guy um, myself. I live or where I'm trapping is very dark, thick timber. There's lots of brush, lots of old logging roads that are overgrown with, with fir trees, um, lots of rock kind of cliffs and canyons. It's right up uh, uh, up the main river, runs through town here and real deep, deep rocky cliffs. Um, the my sets I don't think are are too much different. I would actually just call them a standard for for bobcats. The way I look at it is I try and key in on on kind of three things to to make a cat want to go in there. The first one is kind of you have a big zone area where this cat might run. Um, but there's these specific spots that they're gonna go, a rock overhang or this logging road where three roads interject where 
there might be some kind of tree that attracts birds. Um, you know, I'm looking for those areas. Uh, if you can find tracks or scat, you know, obviously, hey, there's a, been a bobcat here. And my honest opinion is if a cat uses a trail one time, he's going to use it again. Um, you know, and my, my cubbies are, I literally, I hang a feather, you know, right kind of in front of my cubby. If there's a tree in front of it, um, I'll hang it from there. Um, sometimes I'll stake or just tie off a stick to the cubby that hangs up above it. Um, but I have that feather there and it, it's in an open area to where when a cat walks by and that feather's going back and forth and moving, he catches on to it because bobcats primarily use their sight for hunting. Um, and so if there's one walking on the trail, you know, 50 feet away, he goes, Oh, Hey, there's, there's something right there. Now, and coming to that, um, as he gets closer, I use a long call lure. Um, it's from a couple in or over in like Durkee, Oregon, um, the Haney's, um, they make this long call lure that I really like. It's mainly skunky or pretty much skunk. Um, and so I take a glob of that and I set it on top of the cubby. Sometimes I'll even put it on the feather so it catches the wind. Mm. Um, but once they get to coming from the feather, then they get close enough that their nose is able to pick up on that smell. And then I have a big, just dark brush cubby, um, small entrance. I really narrow it down. Now, is your, is your cubby made out of just like pine boughs and anything else that you kind of have local to you that you're just kind of propping up almost like a teepee? Yeah, so I I build a cubby, I, I wire off, I basically make a little frame out of some sticks, make a nice little square, if you will, backed up against a tree. Um, I lay a whole bunch of fur brows all around it and make it dark. I mean, there's there's nothing, no way they can get around because bob, bobcats are notorious for like what I call backdooring a cubby. And mm -hmm. if there's an opening there, they will come through. Um, just to check it out and be sneaky, I guess. Um, a lot of the time you end up catching them by the back foot in that instance because they come through, eat, and then try and walk out the front. Mm. But I like them up front, front foot catch. Um, but anyhow, I, I build this frame of sticks, um, cover it up with brush so that there's no daylight anywhere else. Um, and I'm really particular about where I make their foot step. Um, I have a step stick on all four sides of the trap, so it makes a little square around the trap. I even go as far as putting sticks on the outside of the jaw and little tiny twigs on the inside around the pan. And I was always told you don't need to bury your trap. You don't need to, a bobcat sees that pan and he goes, oh, there's a nice flat spot for me to put my foot. Hmm. And they're real particular about where they put their foot because it's super sensitive. Um, and so they won't step on any of those sticks, but they'll put it right on that pan. Um, and I, I really just narrow it down. But as far as inside the cubby, um, I put something super attractive, um, usually a big chunk of meat. You know, we butcher cows. I use the scraps off of that, a big leg bone. Um, I make in Oregon, we have to have it covered from the air um, so that there's no visible flesh can be seen from the air so that's why i build those cubbies also very thick um 
but another the the best by far the best meat is a big chunk of beaver if you can get you know if i catch a beaver i'm quartering that beaver um and i actually get five quarters the head the neck two front arms with the chest two back legs with the the hips and that's what i one of those chunks is going in a cubby yeah man martin i mean not martin but beaver rather that meat seems to be the go-to for a lot of animals. They, they mm-hmm. seem to love it. I know Martin do. Sounds like Bobcat do. But th- that's pretty amazing. So for me, like I just learned something on the flat pan. And, you know, I guess I didn't realize how sensitive Bobcat feet are. And it makes a lot of sense to kind of have those little almost guiding sticks sticking up to get a cat to step on your pan. Um, in that vein... <laughs> We all go through these learning processes as trappers, right? Whether you're new or whether you've been around for a long time, but whether bobcat trapping, raccoon trapping, what's been the biggest mistake that you've ever made in the field? And then the follow-up question is, what's been the biggest mistake you've made in your fur shed? Ooh. um, So the biggest mistake I've made in the field, oh gosh, um i would say that well so i used to i used to just be real arrogant about oh okay if i just slap this brush hut up let's say for bobcats they're gonna walk right in i don't need the guide sticks Mm. um that was a big one and then i started seeing oh these bobcats are just stepping right over my trap and and that that flat spot doesn't look appealing if everything else in there is nice and open. Mm. Um, and so I started learning that that okay, I gotta I gotta you know uh, narrow these guys down. Maybe put some sticks in front of them too, so they can't just hop into the cubby and then hop back out. Um, setting near, I had a I guess I had a conflict with a, a pedestrian who was walking their dog up a road when i was younger um so trying to find that sweet spot of where to actually set and where not to okay i'm gonna extract a little bit more energy to walk up the hill another 50 feet as opposed to right right close to a road or something like that um and then i'd say in the first shed i actually i mean the the first mistake i ever made as a trapper was um not knowing how to prep my hides Mm. and so and it was described to me by a fur buyer a long time ago he said what's the number or when you go hunting and you shoot an animal now the work begins right once that animal is dead like you could hike your butt off and 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 pursue this animal but the real work starts once that animal is harvested and he said it's no different with putting up fur and so you you know take your time to to make sure you flesh the hide well um, do the animal the utmost respect by putting it up in a way that it's going to be desirable stretching it correctly that's a big one um, learning you know uh, to use wood as opposed to a wire stretcher for a certain kind of animal how you put it up you know, the width and the narrow or of your board, um, not overstretching. There's so many little things that go into it, but you want to do 
the utmost justice that you can for for that animal and my first couple cats that i ever put up um they looked like little footballs and they weren't taken care of the best but i didn't know what i was doing and unfortunately that's that's part of learning um and so i guess on that note talk to your fur buyers when you go to a fur sale they're a wealth of information and those are the guys that are buying your fur so it makes sense that you would put it up in a way that they would like it yeah and i resonate so much with what you just said um obviously mine's a lot more recent as an adult when i started getting into the fur trapping and you know it, it is interesting and i think that's probably a big misconception with trappers and you know i know you do a great job with this with your work with oregon trappers association national trappers association is kind of bringing to light the conservation aspects of you mm -hmm. know what it means to be a trapper but part of that and you know like you mentioned i think it correlates to hunting like you want to do your best to honor whatever animal you're trapping or hunting and you know do your best and you know it's not to scare off people right because you know i wrote about in my book we talked about it when we did a podcast last time like the first few animals you end up harvesting especially trapping when you're trying to flesh them and board them honestly like i'm looking at a shadow box right now of my wife that my wife put together of the first animals i ever tried to skin and tan and they're horrible they're they're shrunk they're they have holes in them they're not stitched up and it's a good reminder that we're all gonna learn the hard way for the most part but to do your best to try to honor them and like you mentioned reach out to people whether it's going to a first show near you asking what they're looking for what the tips and tricks are how do you fix a hole in your hide those are all little things you can start to do in the off season during your season uh, mm -hmm. in order to try to shore up your ability as somebody putting up fur yeah absolutely and i guess on, on that note as well uh practice your your skinning and and your fleshing techniques and you know, every animal is different to flesh, whether you use a beam or just do it knife in hand. Um, I primarily use a beam for, for most critters. Um, bobcats I do by hand because I don't like to put them on my big greasy beam um, from all the other critters because then it requires extra washing, extra care, trying to get that grease out. Um, but every, pre so I guess the best thing I could ever say is if you're going to, try and trap bobcats go try and catch raccoons first you can catch them in the same method with a cubby set um, and a littler foothold or you can use a dog proof whatever your preference um, practice your skinning on on something that isn't as valuable i guess in in that sense there's there's a million raccoons out there and raccoons we know are not a high dollar hide anymore um, it's good practice. Or if you, you got a guy that's, that does nuisance work and he catches a raccoon in the summertime for a homeowner and euthanizes it, ask him if you can practice skinning it, you know, and, and go outside, practice case skinning and, and try and do your best. And that helps tremendously in the whole process. That way, when you touch your knife to the bobcat, you're like, I got this, I can mm -hmm. do it. And 
you've been exposed to a lot of whether you call them old timers or you know folks who've been in the trapping and fur industry for decades if not a lifetime have you learned a trick or has an old timer recommended a certain tool that you now use religiously and can't live without mm. um i so it, it's funny my my trapping mentor not only just my dad but one of the guys that he actually lives like a mile down the road from me um he he taught me a long time ago um basically the main setup i have um the feather was was key i i noticed way more uh catch success when i started putting up something that hangs you know and catches their eye whether it's a feather a cd an old rag with some lure on it, whatever. That was a big trick um, he taught me. Um, but as well, just pay attention because a lot of the time they'll talk. If you're sitting there listening to an old timer, they will tell you, you know, everything you need to know, um, you know. And whether and the the little sticks inside the jaw, that was a big one for me, too, because I was like, oh, I'm not going to put sticks inside the jaw because what happens to that jaw closed on that stick? It's not going to catch that bobcat. Well, you can make or find little sticks that aren't going to impede that jaw whatsoever. I mean, they're spring loaded. Make them, you know, he, he always told me, make the animal step where you want it to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a big one. Um, one tool I would say that. I've found that I cannot live without and is an axe. When I'm when I'm trapping anything, your axe is the most valuable tool. You can use it for digging out a trap bed. I, granted, it doesn't have a big hook on the back. If you want that, get a Pulaski. Um, but you can cut trees. You can uh, you know cut logs. You can dispatch animals with it if you get in a pinch and forget your gun at home or your choke stick um it has by far been the most it's a walking stick at times um i've used it to you know you can sink it into a into a tree and put your hat on it if you got to crawl into the smelly bobcat cubby to undo a foot out of the the trap whatever it may be an axe is by far my most essential tool it's a hammer um it that is the one tool that i would take anytime trapping for anything i agree with that that's my uh my go-to and i was out setting martin traps yesterday and forgot my axe and i was sitting there trying to pull pine boughs off to make a, a little covering and it made me realize how much i mm-hmm. use my axe so i think that's a great one so a little bit of a hypothetical here okay Andrew, imagine that you've had to go to a major urban city, you know, call it Boise, Spokane, wherever. For whatever reason, you got a hankering for coffee. The only thing available is Starbucks. So you go into a Starbucks. Somebody kind of saddles up next to you in a long trench hat, some oversized sunglasses, and they kind of pull you aside, like, come over here. And then they confess and say, Andrew, I want to get into trapping. I don't know where to start. And I'm afraid of getting judged by other people. 
what advice do you give this person to kind of get started in their trapping and fur journey? Uh, the, the advice, the first thing I would say is if, if you want to get into this, um, one, find a trapping mentor, find somebody who's willing to take you out on the line, show you what it's about, show you the work that is involved with it from start to finish. And when I mean, start to finish, I mean, from building the cubby to checking the line, to harvesting the animal, to, to skinning the animal, to putting it up and show them the full experience, um, getting wet and cold and rainy, whatever it may be, um, find a trapping mentor that's willing to take you. Next, I would say go to a fur sale, see, see the, the immense amount um, of fur that's put up, how to put up your fur, um, and, and talk to all the experienced trappers around there because they're a wealth of information. Um, if you're just trying to get info, make friends, uh, go and become part of your state organization, whether it's OTA, Idaho Trappers Association, the National Trappers Association, wherever you live. Um, I, you know, I'm a member of several different trapping associations across the, the country. Um, I think that knowledge is power and to, to share all that and be involved in what's going on. Um, and then I, I would say start off slow too. Um, don't overwhelm yourself in how much you can do. Um, it's not a it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, I guess. So if you want to get into it, um, you know, take your trapping test, get get you a mentor, um, go see what the whole thing's about. Then maybe go buy a couple of traps. Maybe go get you a couple bottles of lure. Start with one animal and, and see how that goes. And from there, work on your progression. And I would say don't be afraid to ask questions either because I know when I started trapping, I'd go, Hey, so what do I got? I just seen some mink tracks here on the bank and I'd get on the phone with my trapping mentor and be like, Hey, how do you catch a mink? You know, and that seems way far off long ago, but I still ask questions today. I call my buddies and been like, Hey, how would you set this? You know, and other than that, you know, I would just say, um, you know, and I guess to follow up, finishing the question they say they're worried about what people think and and you know I, I don't want to be hated or or whatever one um to that note don't worry about what people think you do you um educate yourself on why trapping is important obviously uh population management disease control um uh predation on on game species things of that nature, educate yourself, go, go read books, go listen to, listen to podcasts, watch YouTube videos. There's a ton of information out there, research and studies that, that show you why it is important. Um, be cautious of where other people may be. If you're up in the woods, remember it's public land. It's for everybody to use. It's not just your forest. So be Again, be cautious of where you set that trap. Think about, okay, are, are there a lot of dogs walking by here? I don't want to catch somebody's dog. Um, so keep that in the back of your mind. 
but don't ever apologize for it. If it's something that you love to do um, and somebody doesn't like it, well, that's great. They don't have to like it. You're as long as you're being respectful of, you know, other people out out in the forest enjoying nature, they should be respectful of what you're doing. And, and that's that's my honest uh, opinion on that is, you know, um, and be willing to educate those people by all means. Be able to sit down and talk to those people who have an issue with it and explain it to them. Yeah, I think that's great advice. It's it's becoming a bit of a contentious. I'm going to call it a sport or a job or a pursuit. And I think that's why it is important for folks to join a lot of these associations to get that education to not only talk to people about it, but to talk to people about it in a way that is whether it's backed by science, whether it's backed by history whatever the case may be and to keep your cool and to, you know, be open to their opinions too. And like you mm -hmm. said, they don't have to like it and that's okay. And be able to walk away. But I think that advice is so sage, you know, educate yourself, try to go to your first sales, which I'm sure you can probably find out when those happen near you by joining your association. And then, you know, going to YouTube. That's what I had to do at the beginning before I found a local trapping mentor and, and try focus on a animal do it start to finish. I think that's beautiful. So where can people, Andrew, find out more about you and the work you've done? Maybe you can talk a little bit about your podcast. I know there's multiple you know, where you're involved from that conservation side and how people can follow up to learn more about what you've done and maybe get a little bit more information on trapping as a whole from stuff and content you've put out. Um, so I my podcast um Oregon Trappers Association podcast and then the the National Trappers Association podcast that's where you're going to hear me talk the most um and mainly you know I I've got guests that I'm interviewing and talking about their experience and and their ins and outs you can find those on any major podcasting network whether it's your Apple podcast Spotify Google podcasts Alexa iHeartRadio um all their affiliates were on there. I try and produce a show every week or two weeks, um, just depending on how, how life goes. Um, you can, people can always feel free to email me. Um, it's just organ trapper podcast at gmail.com. Um, I'm willing to sit down and talk with anybody. Um, you can find me on Facebook. It's just Andrew DR. You'll see me there. Um, you know, and, other than that, um, you'll see me run around at, at some different uh, sales and conventions. Um, you know, I, I try and make it to Glens Ferry twice a year um, just to be in Idaho and see see my friends there. Um, I usually make it to the Prineville sale in, in March in Oregon. Um, I haven't made it to Cay Falls. Um, I'm going to try and make it down there this year, hopefully. I'm willing to talk to anybody. Um, but any, anybody able to reach out to me, um, you know, at, at any given time, I'm glad to help. I'm glad to educate. Um, you know, it, it, it's something that we have to have to do um, to continue, you know, doing what we love, if you will. Uh, 
but yeah, you, you can find me on any of those platforms. Like I said, you can send me a Facebook message and, and discuss it with me. And I'd, I'd be glad to sit down. I can talk trapping all day. And I'm a testament to that because after Glenn's fair, you know, you and I have kept in contact. I've had questions, you know, you've always been willing to answer and reach out and discuss and talk and you do a pretty awesome job of just reaching out and say, Hey, how are you doing? And then we obviously go down a trap and rabbit hole of whatever we're targeting at that point, which is awesome. Um, so folks reach out. If you have questions going back to the point of fear, you know, a, a lot of people who get into trapping see people as these grizzled, you know, folks who just spend all their time out in the woods. And, you know, a lot of us trappers do have a certain look to us that might not be extremely approachable. But as a new trapper, someone who's only been doing it for about five years now, I can say without a doubt that the trapping community, even in comparison to the hunting community, is way more open and receptive. So don't be afraid reach out to folks in person, online, wherever. We are excited to have you join the community. We're excited to bring you into the fold. We're excited to get other folks excited about the thing that brings all of us in the traffic community so much joy, whether it's from nostalgia, whether it's from actual, you know, extra income, whatever the case is, reach out. So, Andrew, I want to thank you for the time you just spent coming on the OKS Trapper podcast and nonetheless, episode number one. So thank you for listeners. I hope you all gleaned a little bit of insight. I know I sure did. Please stay tuned for more episodes with trapping and outdoor greats, just like Andrew DeHart. So see you next time, folks.